in the name of Jesus Christ, who says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Grace to you and peace from him, dear friends in Christ. So before you got to church today, how many of you were thinking about heaven? Well, maybe that depends on what kind of morning you had. Maybe it depends on what kind of week you had. Maybe it depends on how old you are. I think when we're young and our health is good and we're full of energy, we don't really think about heaven that much because life is pretty good. As we get older and our body has more aches and pains and we groan as we stand up, as loved ones get sick and ill and maybe even die, then our thoughts turn a little bit more heavenward. This morning, our sermon text from the book of Isaiah focuses our attention on heaven. This morning, we want to consider how great our God is, who gives us only his best and takes away our worst. Let us wait on him. Listen now to the word of God as God speaks to you from Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the word of God. Even so, let us pray that he would use his word to set us apart, that is, sanctify us for his holy purposes. O Lord, sanctify us through your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. So when's the last time you had to describe to someone what heaven was like? As a father with little kids, that question comes up quite often, usually at bedtime. We'll assume the best that the child is not trying to stall getting to sleep, but really wants to know what heaven is like. After all, the parent has just prayed with the child as they lay themselves down to sleep that if they die that night, the Lord would take their soul. So if they take his, their soul to heaven, what's that like? Have you had to explain to someone what heaven is like? How did you do it? What terms did you use? Well, when we're talking to little kids, we want to use terms and things that they understand. The story goes that Martin Luther's son was wondering that very thing, and so Luther asked him, well, what is it that makes you happy? 
what would bring you great joy? And he said, to have a pony. And so Luther said, well, heaven is like getting a pony. So we explain in childlike terms things that are beyond what children can understand. But really, understanding heaven and thinking about heaven and what it's like is beyond all of us. But God wants to help us understand. And so he uses terms that we all would understand. We read of that beginning in the first verse of our text. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. As our text begins, and the mountain is referring to is not the scary mountain of Mount Sinai with the thunder and the lightning and the law. It's Mount Zion, the place where his temple is built, the place where God says, I will come to you here, I will visit you, and I will be with you. Mount Zion's the place where the people of God would worship him. Mount Zion's the place where the priest would raise his hands and give the blessing and put the name of the triune God on his people and bless them. So this mountain is God's people, the gathering of his people here on earth, the church, but ultimately it's heaven. And what does Isaiah say is happening there? He says it's a feast, a feast which features only the best of the best, rich foods and the best cuts of meat. Wine that has been perfectly aged and is a delight to drink. Now, who wants to go to a feast like that? That sounds wonderful. So why does God compare it to a feast? Well, it's because you understand it. You get it. You can think back to the last banquet or wedding reception or even Thanksgiving dinner where everything was perfect. The food was perfect. The company was good, the drinks were good, people were laughing and having a joyous time. That's why God calls it a feast, to help us understand the joy and the delights of heaven. Only unlike that banquet or that wedding reception or that Thanksgiving dinner, which eventually had to come to an end, this feast of heaven will never end. And as we look closer at verse 6, it's fascinating to see who it is that is preparing this feast. When's the last time you went to a wedding reception and you saw the groom in his tuxedo and the bride in her gown back in the kitchen getting the meal ready to serve everyone? It's unheard of, right? The bride and the groom, they're the guests of honor. They're the ones that should be waited on. They're the ones that should be served. Well, how amazing it is then to read in Isaiah 25, 6, that it's the Lord who is preparing this feast. The Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food. This is our God. And he prepares the feast of heaven for us. He's the one that gives his own beloved son into death to earn heaven for us 
and to cleanse us from all our sin. He's the one that sends us his Holy Spirit to make us his children. He's the one that feeds us with his word and his sacrament. And he is the one who gives us the gift of eternal life in heaven. This is our God who gives us only his best. Speaking of feasts, my wife often teases me that I don't have much emotion unless food is involved. And maybe you can identify with that. That food gets us excited, especially when it's something we know we'll enjoy. It excites our senses. Our, we can smell the good food. We anticipate eating it. We anticipate the joy of um, eating that food. So it's no surprise that the God who gave us taste buds, the ability to smell, the ability to eat, and created all those different delicious foods would compare heaven to that feast, something we will enjoy. And though those joys have been prepared for us, we still struggle, don't we? We struggle because our conscience reminds us of our sins. We begin to think, maybe I'm not worthy to be invited to that feast in heaven. We fear that we might be the ones Jesus was referring to in the gospel lesson that's kicked out of the banquet hall because we're not worthy. While that is true, while our sins make us unworthy of that great feast of heaven, return to the text and take a look at who this feast is for. Isaiah says the feast is being prepared for all people. Who does that include? Doesn't that include you? Aren't you a part of all people? And isn't that the beauty of the gospel? That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God is preparing this feast of heaven to share with everyone. The only way this could be possible, the only way that heaven could be open to sinners, is because of Jesus. In the second half of verse 8, we read, The reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I used the word reproach this last week in my conversations. Maybe you did. But maybe that's an unfamiliar term, reproach. Well, if we look at a synonym for reproach, we find the word disgrace. And that one I think we can understand a little bit better. Disgrace is something we are ashamed of. And isn't that our sin? After all, we know the commandments of God. We know how much God loves us. We know what Jesus has done for us. And still, it's our disgrace, it's our shame, it's our reproach that we have disobeyed him in countless ways. But notice what's happening in verse 8. Isaiah says, He takes our reproach away. Our God lifts up that reproach, that disgrace, and takes it away from all the earth. God takes away 
our worst. But to take it away, he had to do something with it. And he placed it on Jesus. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He punishes his own beloved son in your place. Jesus suffers for your disgrace to give you his glory. And when he dies on the cross to save us from our sin, there's something else he's doing. Isaiah writes in our text that he was swallowing death. Now, what a picture. You think of the ugliness of death. If any of you have seen someone who's passed away, it is not pretty. It is not enjoyable, and it's hard to get rid of that image. But here's Jesus, the author of life, on the cross, and what is he doing? He is swallowing that ugliness. He is breathing his last, and he is dying. And then on the third day, he is rising. He rises, he breaks through the covering and the veil, which Isaiah says is spread over all people. And through faith in him, God says this victory over death is now yours. Now for those who die in the Lord, they pass from death to life eternal. Isaiah says that God wipes away the last tear that sin and death brings us in this life as he welcomes us into eternal life. The Apostle John writes the same thing in his revelation. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. The worst, our sin, our death, has been done away with. Jesus has removed our sin and swallowed up our death. This is our God who takes away our worst. So, who's ready to enjoy that feast right now? Again, maybe it depends on your age or your circumstance in life or what this last week was like. But we aren't there yet, are we? We haven't crossed the finish line. The trumpet hasn't sounded. Christ has not yet returned. So we wait. But we know we can trust God. Isaiah says at the end of verse 8 that this is going to happen. He says, the Lord has spoken. Some of you might be familiar with the Mandalorian. And there's a particular character in the series where one of the characters says, I have spoken. By that, the character says, that's the end of the matter. He spoke it, it's done. How much more so with the Lord when he speaks? When the Lord says something, he always follows through. And everything he said in Isaiah, everything he said in his gospel, he is going to follow through on because the Lord has spoken it. 
In Christ, heaven is a done deal. And so we wait. We wait whether it will be today, tomorrow, or 40 years from now. The day will come when we will take our last breath and be with our Savior forever in paradise. Or the day will come when the trumpet will sound and our Savior will appear. And he will gather us from this veil of tears and suffering to be with him forever. And then we will enjoy that heavenly banquet feast that Jesus has prepared for us. As Isaiah writes in the last verse of our text, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The day will come. And until then, we wait. So is it a good thing to think about heaven? Absolutely. That's the whole reason Jesus came. The whole reason he was born, lived, suffered, died, and rose. So that you could enjoy this heavenly banquet. What an amazing God we have who gives us his best, the eternal joys of heaven, who takes away our worst, our sin, our death. Let us wait on him, knowing he will keep his promise of salvation, and in Christ he will give us the gift of eternal life. This is our God. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Amen.